Our Father in heaven, Lord, deep down we long for that day when every tongue will confess that you are God, every hand will be raised um, in praise to you. Lord, we look around us and we see that all the nations right now rage against you in rebellion. Uh, but Lord, the, the, the day is coming when you will put down all of the rebels and you will bring in your kingdom and your kingdom will be filled with nations who long for you, who rejoice in you, who will sing your praises, Lord. We long to hear that thunder of praise that, is, that comes from every mouth that you have created, Lord. And Father, uh, help us to be about your business. Help us to be endeavoring to fulfill the Great Commission, driven by a desire for you to be glorified, that we want as many voices as there can possibly be to be there that day, uh, hearts that are submitted to you, rejoicing in you, praising you. Lord, help us to bring the gospel to the lost, that they may become a true worshiper, that they may join their voices to that throng that is coming. Father, make us faithful in uh, presenting Christ to those who need him, who need to be saved by him, who need to be ruled by him. And Lord, we pray that your word this morning would continue to equip us to that end. Lord, may you cause us to know you more as a result of looking deeply into your word. And as we gaze upon our Lord, may you uh, transform us more and more into his likeness. Father, may you accomplish that even this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be finishing uh, chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews today, and we're looking at verses 25 through 29 of Hebrews chapter 12. So let me just read that passage for us. It says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns them from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Um, when that first generation of Israelites were delivered from the land of Egypt, and they had come up to the promised land, you will remember that they sent 12 spies to go and investigate that land and to bring back a report to the people. And keep in mind that God, at this point, had already promised the Israelites that he was going to give them this land as their inheritance, and that he was going to personally go before them and drive out the wicked inhabitants of that land. He guaranteed it. But when those spies came back, ten of those spies convinced all of the people that the Canaanites and all the other ites in that land were far too strong and that they actually had no hope of possibly 
conquering this land and coming into possession of it. They did not believe that God would be faithful to give them the land. They sinfully underestimated him. And when we believe that God is less holy than he says he is, less gracious than he says he is, we, like they, have succumbed to the unbelief of underestimating God. And when we do that, it leads to disastrous consequences, like we saw with the Israelites. We become more prone to sin because we stop believing that God will follow through on his promise to punish sin. We become more prone to forsake Christ because we don't believe that Jesus really is enough for us. And we don't believe that he actually has done enough to save us. And we don't believe that the kingdom he is bringing, to, bringing us to is as glorious as he says it is. We underestimate him. Jesus has saved us from the wrath of Mount Sinai. And he has delivered us into the joy of Mount Zion. And this passage that we're looking at this morning warns us against becoming duped into thinking that the wilderness pastures surrounding Sinai are actually greener than the slopes of Zion. It warns us against exchanging the eternal joy of knowing Jesus for the passing pleasures of sin. This passage is the fifth and final warning of this letter. These verses are the final piece of this long 12-chapter argument that the preacher has been making. And he warns us here to not underestimate our God. And there are two things that he commands us to do in order to avoid falling into the unbelief of underestimating God. And I should mention, you have the outline up there, but uh, Bob Stinson has taken it upon himself to print off papers of the outline, um, so we should probably have that every week just for future reference, but just wanted to make note of that. And you'll see those two commands that we receive in this passage that we need to do in order to avoid falling into the unbelief of underestimating God. And the first is this, that we must be careful not to refuse God. We see this in verses 25 through 27. He begins in verse 25 by saying, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He says, see to it. He's calling us to keep a close watch, to be on the alert over our own souls and over our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to see to it that we do not refuse him who is speaking. The preacher, he refers to God as him who is speaking. And we saw back up in verses 18 through 21 how God spoke to his people at Mount Zion. He spoke from the midst of that deep darkness and that fire scaring the living daylights out of the people. But how has God spoken to his people under the new covenant? How is God speaking to us now? Because we're exhorted not to refuse him who is speaking to us. How has he spoken to us, us believers, under the new covenant? Well, you remember chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. God has spoken to us in the person of his Son, Jesus. And the preacher is commanding us to be very careful not to refuse this God who has spoken the gospel to us in his Son, Jesus. Now, how do we refuse him? We refuse this God by not humbly trusting in Jesus alone to be our Savior. We refuse him by denying Jesus absolute authority and lordship over our life. We refuse him by turning away from him in order to pursue our lusts and our idols, just like the Israelites did. But why is it so important that we be careful, that we see to it, that we not refuse this God? And the preacher gives us two reasons. The first reason we find in the rest of verse 25 and verse 26, and it's this, that you cannot escape this God. Verse 25 goes on. He says, For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Here in these verses, we are directed back to Mount Sinai again. We are to recall the Israelites and what happened to them due to their unbelief, due to their wayward hearts. Do you remember the commitments that the people made to God on three different occasions when God made his covenant with them, when he brought them to him on the mountain? Do you remember what they said? They said, all that the Lord has commanded we will, what? Do. We'll do. We'll do it all. They said it three different times. And when they heard the voice of God from the midst of the fire and the whirlwind on the mountain, they piously professed that they feared God and that they would obey him. I want you to see that in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Again, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to that second generation of Israelites where Moses is recounting to this second generation what happened with that first generation that God had brought out of Egypt. And he's telling them about what happened at Mount Sinai when God met with the people. And in chapter 5, he, he tells about how God declared the Ten Commandments. And then when we get to verse 22, Moses reminds this second generation of what their forefathers, how they, their forefathers responded. So Deuteronomy 5, verse 22, says, These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, of the cloud and of the thick gloom, with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. You said, 
Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. They piously profess their fear of God and their commitment to obey him. But then notice what God says about them. Verse 28, The Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. You see what God is saying What they said with their lips was good. That was right. But despite their profession, what was going on in their hearts? Their hearts were actually far from God. He says, oh, that their hearts were actually this way. In reality, they had rejected him from the heart as their God. And we see throughout the Old Testament the disastrous results of their rejection. They were unable to escape the wrath of the God they had rejected. Now, if the people who stood before that earthly Mount Sinai under the old covenant were unable to escape God's wrath, the argument here is how much less can God's people who stand before the heavenly Mount Zion under the new covenant, how much less can they hope to escape God's wrath should they turn away from this God. And the preacher is fond of these kinds of from the lesser to the greater arguments. He makes the same argument back in chapter 2 of Hebrews. In verse 1, when he says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, speaking of the gospel, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, he's referring to the old covenant there, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? See, same argument. And then back in, or over in chapter 10, in verse 28, He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? It's the same exact argument. At Sinai, the people saw and felt the raw power of God when his voice shook the whole mountain. But back in chapter 12 and verse 26, God is telling us 
that as dramatic as that display of power was, we ain't seen nothing yet. Because the day is soon coming when, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. The preacher, he's quoting here from the prophet Haggai, what I read earlier. I want you to just, I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but turn back to Haggai. I just want you to observe as I talk through it a little bit. Again, you you get to Malachi and then to Zechariah and then back to Haggai, third to last book of the Old Testament. And again, Haggai was around when the people of Israel had returned from their exile in Babylon and they had begun to rebuild the temple. And we saw in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 how God is recalling to their minds the glory of Solomon's temple. And now that temple got wiped out when Babylon came and conquered them. And now they're back and they're rebuilding it. And it's like nothing compared to the temple that was before. They're looking at this pitiful little building. And then in verse 6, well actually verse 5, we see that Haggai is referring back to when? He's referring back to when God took the people out of Egypt and he brought them to Sinai and he made a promise to the people at Sinai. And what did he promise? That they would be his people and he would be their God dwelling among them. He says, as for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So Haggai is talking about Sinai. That's why the preacher quotes him, because he's talking about the same thing. And then when we get to verse 6, this is the verse that the preacher quotes from, where God says once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. Here, uh, and then he goes on to say he's going to shake all the nations. And that the latter glory of this temple, verse 9, will be greater than the former. Haggai here is comforting these returning exiles who no doubt were feeling very small in the midst of a big world. And again, they were staring at this dinky little temple in comparison with Solomon's temple that they had built. But Haggai is telling them that there is a time coming when God is going to shake heaven and earth. But what does that mean that God is going to shake heaven and earth? Well, when you get to verse 21 and and 22, he tells us what that means. Verse 21, he speaks of shaking the heavens and the earth. Verse 22 tells us what that involves. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. He's saying that he is going to shake the nations. God is going to overthrow the kingdoms of the earth in order to establish his kingdom and dwell among his people like never before. God is assuring his people that his kingdom is coming. And with all this shaking happens, his people are going to be left standing. No nation, no kingdom is going to make it through all of that, but God's people, at the end of it all, they will be there and they will enter into his kingdom. 
He's assuring this people who've just come from exile that he will do this. Now back to Hebrews chapter 12. What was a word of assurance and Haggai is here turned into a word of warning to us. Because it's only God's people that are going to make it through that shaking. And he's telling us that if we forsake Christ and we throw our lot in with the nations, that we are going to be a part of that shaking. There will be nowhere to run. There will be nowhere to hide. Because God is going to tear this whole world apart. The Apostle John, he speaks quite vividly of this great shaking that is going to happen in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. The Apostle describes what he sees of this coming day, this day when God is going to shake the whole universe. He says, I looked when he, Jesus, broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? You cannot escape this God. That is why we must see to it. We must be careful not to refuse God. There's a second reason why we must be careful not to refuse God. And the second reason is this. A new world will replace the old. We see this in verse 27. The preacher, he goes on to expound on this quote that he made from Haggai. He says, This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. The second reason why we must be careful to not refuse this God is because this world, this current world that we are living in, will have no place in the world to come. Verse 27 tells us that the purpose of God's shaking the whole universe is to do away with the things of this world so that the new creation may take its place. I want you to think about this. As the Titanic was sinking, do you think that any of the passengers who found a spot in a lifeboat Do you think any of them actually jumped out of the lifeboat and then swam to the sinking ship in order to get back on it and start rearranging the deck furniture? Of course not. If you were looking for a place to live in the Pacific Northwest in 1979 and you knew that Mount St. Helens was going to erupt the following year, 
Would you have purchased any property at the foot of Mount St. Helens? Of course not. Why not? Because you know that you would, that would be the death of you. You'd go down with the Titanic. You'd get blown out of the sky by Mount St. Helens. So why do we get so allured by this world and the things of this world? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see the warning here in verse 27. God is going to remove this world. And so if we attach ourselves to this world, instead of attaching ourselves to Christ, we are going to get swept away along with the world. So is it any wonder that the preacher commands us to be careful that we do not refuse this God? We must be careful because if we, if we make a mockery of God and we abandon Christ, you cannot escape him. And we must be careful not to refuse this God and attach ourselves to this world because this whole world is not going to have a place in the coming kingdom. We must be careful not to refuse this God. But there's one more thing that we need to do in order to avoid falling into the unbelief of underestimating God. And it's this, we must be grateful to God. We must be grateful to God. Verse 28, he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Secondly, the second command here, considering who our God is and what he has given us in Christ Jesus. You must be grateful to this God. In verse 28, the preacher exhorts us. He says, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. The word here for gratitude, it's it's the word grace. It's usually translated as grace. That's why some of your translations might read here, instead of let us show gratitude, yours might say let us have grace. But when this word for grace is stuck into a phrase like this, let us have grace, it takes on the nuance of not meaning grace, but rather our response to grace, our response to someone's generosity. It's like when you sit down at the dinner table and you say, let's say grace. What do you mean by that? Let's respond to God's generosity to us in having provided this meal. Let's say grace. So this, this is speaking of gratitude. Let us show gratitude. Let us respond appropriately to God's grace. And we're told here in verse 28 that in order to serve God, 
in order to worship him in an acceptable way, a way that is pleasing to him, we must have gratitude. We must possess an attitude of thankfulness. If you try to serve God or worship God, but you are not being thankful toward him, your service to him is not acceptable to him. If you gave, for instance, someone a very generous gift and they wrote you a thank you note and you got it in the mail, that would please you. It feels good to get a thank you, you know, to have someone recognize the generosity that was extended to them. But if you knew that this person wrote that card, grumbling all the while, lamenting the cost of the stamp and the cramp he got in his hand as he was writing out this card and lamenting the paper cut that he sustained as he licked the envelope and that by the time he got to the mailbox he was cursing your name, what would you feel about that thank you card? It would be meaningless to you because you know that that person really did not appreciate your generosity at all. You would rather they just not have sent the card at all. If we are not thankful to God, if we do not reverence him, if we do not stand in awe of him for who he is and what he has done for us, then our worship will be utterly unacceptable to him, whatever we may say with our lips. One of the early church leaders, John Chrysostom, he was alive way back in the 300s. I liked what he said commenting on this passage. He said, quote, For whatever work a man does with murmuring, he cuts away and loses his reward. As the Israelites, how great a penalty they paid for their murmurings. He goes on to say, It is not therefore possible to serve him acceptably without a sense of gratitude to him for all things, both for our trials and the alleviations of them. That is, let us utter nothing hasty, nothing disrespectful, but let us humble ourselves that we may be reverential, for this is with reverence and godly fear." Unquote. I wonder, after studying this passage, how much of my service to God will yield no heavenly reward because my often grumbling heart has turned my quote-unquote good works to wood, hay, and stubble. How much of it will be burned up by God's fiery evaluation because of my murmuring? We must be grateful to God. But the preacher, he has very specific reasons for why we must be grateful to God. And the first reason we saw in verse 28, right at the beginning, he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. God, out of his boundless grace, has brought us into his unshakable kingdom. The privilege that we have as being citizens of Christ's kingdom the blessing that it will be to dwell in this unshakable kingdom for all of eternity is unfathomable to us. We can't 
We, we don't understand how glorious that is going to be. We just can't possibly know what it's going to be like. And that's because that the kingdom that's coming, this unshakable kingdom, is unlike anything we have ever experienced in this world. This world is in a constant state of change and deterioration and degradation. It feels like the whole world is tottering, just waiting for someone just to give it just a little push and the whole thing will just fall over and break apart. And as believers, we are constantly experiencing loss in this world. Loss of health. Loss of loved ones. Loss of financial security. Loss of confidence in our earthly leaders. Loss of friends. Loss of the world's respect. We feel this whole world shaking all around us. Our Heavenly Father as we saw earlier in this chapter, he uses these trials, these losses, to discipline us. That is, to train us not to put our hope in this very shakable world. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when at the revelation of Jesus Christ referring to his kingdom his coming and the kingdom that he is bringing with him we are to fix our hope on that on him and that unshakable kingdom that he's bringing through our trials through his discipline through our losses through his sifting of us shaking us he is weaning us from this world My son has not been weaned yet, so he is screaming for milk. But God is weaning us from this world. But he is bringing us an unshakable kingdom where we, where we will never experience loss ever again. The only thing that we're going to lose in his kingdom is our sin, our grief, and our weakness. We will only ever, in his kingdom, experience the eternal gain and the satisfaction and the joy of spending endless moments knowing and experiencing our infinite God more and more. We will only experience the gain of offering him acceptable service for all of eternity. Is that not something to be grateful for? If you dwell on this truth that that we have been made citizens of an unshakable kingdom and the day is coming when we are going to be in our God's presence and we are going to see him with unveiled face and we are going to be set free from our sin and enabled to serve him perfectly, worship him perfectly forever and ever. And if you set your hope on that, then no matter what trial comes upon your life, you will be able to maintain gratitude to God because the eternal weight of glory that is coming you know that it far outstrips any amount of suffering that you will endure in this present world. We're to be grateful to God because we've received an unshakable kingdom. But there's one more reason why we must be grateful to God, and it's in verse 29. Let us show gratitude 
4, verse 29, our God is a consuming fire. We must be grateful to God because our God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire. The preacher gets this phrase from the Old Testament. This phrase is repeated a number of times. And this idea of God being a consuming fire, it comes directly from the people's experience of this God at Sinai. You don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, we see this phrase. Moses, again, is speaking to that second generation of Israelites as they are getting ready to enter into the promised land. And he's preparing them to enter into this land, and he's telling them what they need to do so they don't get kicked out of this land. He says, So watch yourselves, that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. As a consuming fire, who is it that God consumes by the fires of his judgment? Is it not all who do not believe in him? Is it not all who turn away from him to pursue idols? And when Moses, in that Deuteronomy 4, verse 23, when he said to the people, so watch yourselves, is that not what we are being told here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25? He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This command to have gratitude, it's really just one more way to describe persevering in faith. Please follow me here. I'm making a lot of connections in what I'm about to say. To not have gratitude for who God is and what he has done in saving us. To not have gratitude is to follow the example of Esau, ungrateful Esau. To not have gratitude is to despise our birthright as he did. It is to think lightly of Jesus such that we become willing to choose sin over him. If I stop being grateful for what the Lord has done for me, that means I have totally lost all perspective of how glorious the gift that our Lord has given me is. I have become ungrateful. And when I become willing to choose sin over him, it means my whole view of this unshakable kingdom he has given me is totally warped. It is to stop persevering in faith. To stop being grateful is the same thing as to stop persevering in faith, is to stop believing what he said. So how do we persevere in faith? How do we keep from falling into the unbelief of underestimating God? We do it by being careful not to refuse our God. We do it by being grateful to God for who he is and what he's done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. What has Jesus done? We need to remind ourselves every day of this. We forget the gospel. We need to preach it to ourselves every day. What is the gospel? What are we to be thankful for? The son of God himself became a man and he died on the cross 
paying for all the sins of all who would turn from their sin and put their trust in him as their Lord and Savior. And then he rose from the dead, and he did all of that in order to bring his people into an unshakable kingdom. Do you know that you deserve hell? I deserve to burn in hell forever because of my sin against God, but he, through Christ, has instead brought me into his kingdom and cleansed me so that I can dwell in the midst of the consuming fire with joy and peace forever. That is what Jesus has done. Shouldn't we be grateful for that? That's an understatement. Let us be thankful to him. Let us never stop humbly entrusting ourselves to him. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this warning to us. Father, we've just gone through, we've just finished going through the argument that the preacher has made. There's one more chapter, but the substance of his argument we have just come to the end of, and he's ended with this warning. And Lord, we know that your warning is meant for our safety. It's meant to keep us from leaving our refuge, leaving God. Lord, we thank you that our Lord has promised that he will not lose a single one of his people. And this warning is just one means that you have brought to ensure that, Lord, we are safe in your hands. We thank you for this warning that spurs us on. Lord, help us to be careful, to see to it that we do not refuse you who are speaking. Help us to always have humble hearts before you, knowing that you know better than us. Lord, help us always to be grateful to you. Lord, our hearts can be so often slow and grumbling and apathetic. Lord, help us to be faithful to preach the gospel to ourselves, to constantly remind ourselves of who you are, who we are, and how badly we need the Savior that you have sent to save us. And if we are faithfully doing that, we will always be grateful. We will never be without a reason to give thanks, no matter what kind of pain we are being subjected to in this world. We know that in the world to come, there is an eternal weight of glory, and that the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared with the joys of that one. And Lord, if any are here who do not know you, who have not ever been careful to see that they do not refuse you, who have never had any gratitude, real gratitude to you for what you've done, have never surrendered their life to you, have never recognized that you died for us so that we might live not for ourselves but for you. Lord, may you draw them into your unshakable kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.